um, develop self-worth by seeing how others are treated and you learn from what happened to them and you make inferences based off of that. And then also it comes down to abilities. Well, this person is a better singer than I am, so I must not be a good singer. Um, or this person is a better kickball player than I am. And that's probably true because I'm not a kickball player. So um, that's how we get it. Opinions, situations, and abilities. Um, so now I get to tell you a little bit of my story with self-worth through family members, through um, relationships, through situations. Um, and actually, this is something that I felt as in preparing for this talk. God led me to write out significant events, and he brought significant events to my mind, um, things that were said to me, things that I took away and perceived. And I can see how some of those things, starting really young, have influenced me. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit about these things. Um, and for that matter, if you hear something in this story, maybe you just want to write some stuff down. I'm just going to come on over here because I'm going to be writing a lot. So um, I started to think I was fat when I was, I was young. I don't actually remember the age, but I remember the first time I felt that I was, I was fat. That's who I was. Um, I was a pudgy kid, and a family member told me that um, I just finished singing on stage, and a family member told me that I was a little bit pudgy and that fat girls don't get jobs or boyfriends. And so um, I walked away from that thinking, if I'm fat, I'm not going to get those things, so I need to be skinny. So I'm just going to write that down. Stick that in the cup. Um, in fifth grade, I had a boyfriend in fifth grade. Um, and we dated in the classroom, in the back of the classroom, we held hands. It was great. Um, and he broke up with me for a friend, and I remember thinking, he didn't say this, I just remember thinking, he didn't like me because I'm a brunette, and I wasn't pretty. Um, I had a guy in eighth grade that I never dated. I totally loved him, um, but he treated me really, really badly. And so um, he, because he was like prepubescent and I was developed, um, I was taller, I was bigger, and I had hair on my arms, and he didn't. And therefore, he took to calling me Harry Hannah. Um, <laughs> and this is not, uh, it made me feel ugly, and it made me feel like a man. And I walked away from that, feeling like I wasn't pretty and that I was fat and hairy. Um, so I'll write some of that down. This is not to feel sorry for me, by the way. This is what's going on in your story. Um, in 10th grade, I had my first kiss, and the guy made me feel pretty, but he cheated on me with a friend of me because she was flirty and outgoing and available and athletic. And I left that relationship feeling like my personality wasn't what guys wanted. In 11th grade and beyond, because I liked him for a long time, um, my boyfriend, he made me feel pretty, but he thought it was weird that I was a virgin and didn't want to have sex until I was married. Um, he slept with another girl in my choir class, and then I actually wrote this down. He pulled a Ross Geller and said we were on a break, and he really did do that. Um, and I was so in love with him that I continued to flirt and tease him, trying to win him back after that was over. 
And I left that relationship feeling like my personality wasn't uh, enough without sex. And since I wasn't having sex and wasn't planning on having sex until I got married, I just wasn't ever going to be enough. And I should also tell you, um, I'm still a virgin, uh, but it's not because I was pious all of this time. It's not because it was always a, um, a deliberate choice for God. It's because I was too self-conscious to take my clothes off. So that's, in one way, that saved me in some things. Um, in 12th grade, a family member asked me if I was a lesbian because I turned down a date to my senior prom in order to go with a group of girls. And I began to get the idea that I wasn't complete without a man. Um, so in college, I started to wise up and realize that I needed to get a man pretty quickly. So um, in sophomore year, definitely just made out with this guy a lot. Um, <laughs> we didn't have a relationship. I simply flirted, and he gave me attention when he felt like it. And I learned that flirting worked for a while. I believe the fairy tale that by throwing myself at him, he would see what a wonderful girl I was, um, and that he would choose to be in a committed relationship with me. Um, that seems funny to me now. Totally ridiculous. Um, into sophomore year in college, I had a steady boyfriend. We dated. It was a rough relationship and a complicated one. It was a Christian one where we would constantly struggle with all the sex stuff and then constantly feel guilty for struggling. It was just an absolute mess. And I left that relationship feeling like I was a bad Christian. Um, I'd write that down, but I'm out of paper now. So... Um, I'm going to skip down a little bit to people everywhere all the time, asking if I had a boyfriend and saying things like, oh, it's okay, when I told them that I didn't, or I just don't understand why a man doesn't want you. Um, most of the time, that was said it was well-meaning. It was usually by some sweet old lady who was trying to come from the perspective of, like, I think you're wonderful. But what translated was, a man doesn't want you. I was incomplete without a man. I was alone. Something was wrong with me. Um, so then, then I met Jason, and I got permission to share this portion of the story, so I'm going to use his name. Um, Jason is my boyfriend, and we are in a really great relationship. And he treats me well. He's not perfect, but he does some really nice things for me, and he tells me he loves me, he serves me, he encourages me, he loves Jesus. And so I began to feel safe there, and I began to put my worth in Jason. And it started out, it was going really well. I mean, we've been dating two and a half years. But um, in November of this past year, um, things started to go wrong because he started saying things like, I'm worried that I'm not enough for you. And um, I didn't understand that because I'm like, what are you talking about? This is like the best relationship ever. This is so great. And he's like, I can't meet your needs. And so my response was like, you're worried about nothing. Once we get married, it's not going to be an issue. Like, my doubt comes from the fact that you're not proposing to me. And he's like, no, no, no. So, um, so then all of a sudden, Jason and I started to fight quite a bit. And it would fight. We'd fight over things like I would be bawling my eyes out saying, I'm not good enough. Why don't you love me? You're never going to marry me. You don't want to be with me. And it would come because... Um, I was putting my worth in him, and then I would try to control the situation and put a timeline on it, like, well, we have three months, and in three months, 
you're going to propose to me. Or in three months, we need to take this step, or we need to do this. Um, and so hindsight, like, it seems ridiculous, right? And the cycle is very clear. The more that I controlled, the more that fear he had, and the more he backed away. And the more that he backed away, the more that I controlled, the more that he backed away. And so um, that's kind of where we are. And no matter how good Jason was, he still wasn't enough. He wasn't enough for my self-worth. Um, so this is kind of where my story stops currently. It's going to continue going, but this is where I am at the moment. Um, However, I realize that a lot of your stories may not be in that. Maybe uh, your story is somewhere else. I've had a lot of really good friends who are honest enough, who are in different life situations, to tell me a little bit about their struggles with self-worth. I won't go into all the details, but basically, whether the marriage was good or bad, each woman found that her husband couldn't inflate her self-worth. In fact, he could only deteriorate it. And that's where I find myself often. So um, I will tell you right now, Jason and I are doing good because um, there has been an element of surrender that has entered into our relationship. I still don't have guarantees. I still don't know what is going to happen, but there is an element of surrender there that is making me less controlling and him less afraid. So so that's a little bit how self-worth has affected my relationships, what's been going on in me, things that have been bubbling up and building over time. I hope that you've found a little bit of your story maybe in that, or maybe there's some other things that you've been able to write down and fill in your cup. So I want to give you just a couple of other ideas of how this can affect our relationships. Um, Just some general ideas. First, we hide ourselves. We hide our feelings. Uh, We miss out on doing things. Have you ever not done something because of what you were thinking about yourself? For example, not gone to a wedding because you knew you were going to be the only person single. Um, One time, one of the more ridiculous ones, the Ross Geller that I dated in high school. Um, Ross was six foot four and 200 pounds, and we were like joking around, and he was like pretending like he wanted to lift me up in the air. And I told him that I was afraid of heights because I really thought that I was too heavy for him to lift me. And I was like a size six at the time. So... I had believed this lie, and so I didn't, I missed out on a, let's just call it a flirty opportunity, because of my self-worth. So we hide our feelings, we stuff them down, we pretend to be somebody that we're not. We miss out on doing things, or we change our actions. And then we also play some mind games. This is where a lot of passive aggression comes in, right? Because we're not going to say that thing because then that might cause them to judge us. So we're just going to kind of slide it under the table. Um, if, we don't, if we don't hide ourselves, we might flaunt ourselves. So um, we might act out to get attention. This will come in the form of like text, like texting that guy at 12.45 a.m. that you know you shouldn't be texting, but you're texting him because... When he responds at 2 in the morning, you wake up and you're like, oh, he likes me. Um, Or you know that something is wrong. You know that flirting isn't a good thing. You know that sex isn't a good thing. But at the same time, it gives you just that little edge to keep going. It's like a little bit, a little bit of satisfaction, like a taste. Um, Or maybe you're like me and you try to control the relationship. 
That's what I do. Control. Well, we're going to do it this way. I'm going to get my to-do list out. We're going to make this all happen. Um, this is also probably where affairs would stem from. Acting out in a different way. And then we also tell ourselves all sorts of junk about ourselves. And it usually comes... All right. Well, let me know if we need to duck and cover. Um, this comes into the form of if only I had, or if only I was, if only I was a size smaller, if only I had a man, if only somebody loved me. And we tell ourselves these things. This is what it does to us. We start thinking these things all the time. Does any of that ring true? So now we, I'll go back to why I hate this topic. Because all of that stuff that I just said is pretty heavy. Like, that's really raw for me. Um, and when we talk about self-worth, I feel like a lot of times, or at least to me, so many times, um, it's like people slap Bible verses all over me like a Band-Aid. And they say, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. But when you're alone at home and you're crying because you just want a man to put his arms around you, fearfully and wonderfully made just doesn't feel like enough. It hurts. It almost, it's almost insulting to hear it. Um, when you want human love. So, I fill my cup with those things. And so, we, we go to psychology, and we think about like, what psychology says about self-worth, because psychology has a whole lot to tell us about self-worth. Um, but I'll just go ahead and tell you what it says. It basically says that self-worth is about who you are, not about what you do, dot, dot, dot. But the world's only answer for trying to build your self-worth is do better. That's all it is, do better. Every single site that I went to, like academic or BuzzFeed, I went to a lot of different ones because I was looking for something, was all things that you could do, all actions. And some of those actions are good. For example, you do, have, you do feel better when you get enough sleep. You do feel better when you eat well. But every single one of these things was an action, which leads us right back into performance. And so we walk around to everyone and everything, and we're going, will you fill my cup? Will you fill my cup right now? We go to men. We go to, I don't know, we go to our work, we go to our careers, we go to the refrigerator and we say, will you fill my cup? And we are walking around with these cups and it's things like lose that weight, get prettier, become smarter, make more money, find a better man, take the high road, even we'll say that one, not get revenge, take the high road. Well, what if you don't take the high road well? Or the Christian version is read your Bible more. <laughs> Be a better version of you. That's what the world will tell us to do. And I want to qualify that. I want to qualify that because those things do, they're not bad. It's not bad to want a man. It's not bad, like, it's not bad to want a baby. It's not bad to want a marriage. It's not bad for those things. But when they start to define you, all of a sudden, something has become misplaced. And the way that I think of that, that defining is if I can put Hannah Bruce colon fat. I've got a problem. Hannah Bruce colon alone. 
I've got a problem. If anything there becomes my definition of who I am, if that starts to define my life, it's no longer a healthy thing. And so it leads us into condemnation. And last week, Veronica did a really great job of explaining um, guilt and conviction versus shame and condemnation. And so I want to add a little bit to that. Um, Last week, she said that condemnation and shame was I am bad, and guilt and conviction was I did something bad. So let's go back to the uh, condemnation. Um, Condemnation is not only I am bad, or I am fat, or I'm not pretty. It's Um, It's very general in nature. It's like those things. It always communicates failure, and it leads you back into the cycle of performance and self-worth, performance and self-worth. Because what happens when you fill your cup with something like that, when you fill your cup with something like a diet, when you fill your cup with something like a man, at some point it falls through, and then your performance has failed, and then your self-worth is lowered, and then you start over. And that is condemnation. So I want to go and I want to talk about what the Bible has to say about this. Because I feel like there's a woman that really we can identify with. So I'm going to read through. i got to get moving. I'm going to read through John 4. I'm going to read through the whole thing. And then I'm going to break down a couple of parts for you. So um, this is Jesus and the woman of Samaria. So, Jesus, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is like the middle of the day, like noontime. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where did you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give, that I will give him, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And one of the notes I have in here from one of Woody's sermons says that um, living water can be translated into fresh, new water. Um, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And I'm going to skip down. And it says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The woman said to him, 
I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who you speak to am he. And just then the disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with the woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town. So I want to break down a few things. First of all, this woman has a lot to do with us. Um, She's done a lot of the same things that we have done. She just got married a little bit more than most of us have. So she had five husbands, five relationships, and then one guy on the side. So think about her self-worth issues, like what happens when you're in a relationship like that. Um, After you've been married a few times, people are talking about you. Five times, people are definitely talking about you. Um, And people were talking about her because she can't make a relationship stick. And I actually Googled some of, like, the pains of divorce, um, and it is considered similar to the grief of death, regardless of the circumstances, whether the woman wanted the divorce or not. The, the consequences, the feeling of grief is the same. Loneliness, financial stress, uh, this one was seemed really unfair. The stigma of being a divorced woman is greater Whereas for men, it's often considered a compassionate thing. And, oh, we need to take care of him. So can we just agree, this woman, this woman is us. We have a lot in common with this woman. Um, and Jesus addresses the fact that she's walking around wanting her cup to be filled by men. He's, he just says it. He says, this is what I see. Um, he notes that her actions are off because she's out there at noon. And the normal time to go get all of your water, is in the morning time. So she's already doing something weird because of her self-worth, because she knows people are talking about her, because she knows that she doesn't quite add up here. And then also her thoughts are off. I mean, she's got six guys in her life at the moment, okay? And she's separated from community. She's separated from the town. So he points out all of these things in her. And then in verses 19 through 20, I'll read that again. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So basically, she changes the subject. He says, you've had five husbands. And she's like, well, this is where I go to church. That's what happened right there. And then she said, she basically said, you're a prophet, so tell me what I need to do. Give me a to-do list. Give me something that I can do to make my worth better. Um, And I feel like we do that a lot. We say, God, you're so smart. Let me go worship in the right place. Let me memorize enough scripture, and I'll be good. I'll be good. This will fix it. It's never fixed me. Um, So we pull out the to-do list, and we plan about how we can do better, and we go back into the cycle of condemnation to be better performers. And so um, I want to invite you right now to take your cup. Let's hold them up. So this is what we bring to the table. Can we drink this? Is this water? Is this life-giving? Is it hydrating? Can we drink up? No, because everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. None of these things will ever satisfy me. So, 
we're going to leave it on a dark note for the moment, but I promise you there is some hope coming. Um, what I want you to do, we're going to send it to the tables. And I would ask you to be real in this. Ask, um, be brave in this. So the question is, what types of lies do you find in your cup? What actions has it led to? And have these things satisfied you? So we're going to talk for a few minutes, and then I'm going to come back, and we're going to talk about hope. All right? Go ahead. Hello. All right. We're back. I'm sorry to interrupt your conversation. Um, while we were at my... Ooh. There we go. While we were at my table, um, actually listening to some other people brought up a couple more. Um, I feel like I'm not good enough because my house isn't clean. I'm going to put that one in there. If you want to add that to yours as well. Is everybody writing down right now? My, my solution to this was going to be like immersion therapy where we show up at your house and we're like, I'm here, I need to use your bathroom. And then you just like go to see like the ring around the toilet and then we'll just get used to it. So, right? Okay. All right. So, so now that we've looked at inside our cups and what we fill ourselves with and what we tell ourselves on the regular, um, I want to... I want to go to what's actually true. So, um, verse 13, which is where we left off, basically. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, who is just, she's us, everyone who drinks of this water right here will thirst again. Why? Because it's not water. And we will die of dehydration if we continue to try to drink this. It's not life-giving. But the very next verse, he tells us, whoever drinks of the water that I give, him will never be thirsty again. So it comes down to the water that Jesus gives. And I want to read a couple of other excerpts. Verse 21, Jesus says, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And she says, I know that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus says, I am he. And then what I love Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar. So Jesus explains to the woman who says, oh God, you're so smart. And yes, you're right. I do have five husbands. I do have some self-worth issues. I'm just going to read my Bible a little bit more and go to church and then we're all going to be good. What he says to her, um, he explains that it's not about where you worship. It doesn't matter if you worship on this mountain or on that mountain. It doesn't matter if you read your Bible you can't make yourself better. It's by him. I am he. He is the one who makes it better. And I really, I pray that this makes sense because um, so often we, again, like I said, we stick these Bible verses all over us and they mean nothing. Um, so here's why it means something. Because Jesus is both our high priest 
and our mediator. And to explain this, we have to kind of go back to the Old Testament for a few minutes. So we'll start with Adam and Eve, and we're just going to go through really, really fast. Adam and Eve, they sinned because they believed that they were not enough by not knowing everything. And all of a sudden, they sinned, they now know everything, but they're separated from God. And that's where humanity is. It started with self-worth. We are separated from God. And so in order for God to speak to his people, because he still loved his people, he used a mediator. And it came through prophets, it came through judges, it came through some kings, it just depends. And then probably the most known or the great mediator was Moses. And it's through Moses that God spoke. Moses would go up on a mountain, and then we would get the Ten Commandments. We got the whole law through Moses. So God spoke to Moses, and then Moses spoke to the people. But the people never heard from God. Moses was in the middle. So then the people had to respond, because anytime God gives you revelation, you have to respond. We learned that a couple of weeks ago. So to respond, they had a high priest. And the high priest, probably the greatest one, was Aaron. That's the one that everybody knows. So Aaron was Moses' brother. And how this would work is the people would go and to the temple or to the tabernacle, and they would say, Aaron, hey, I've sinned. I've done this. Or I want to offer praises to God. I want to talk to him. And Aaron would say, okay. He would go and cleanse himself, and then Aaron would go in and Aaron would offer up praises to God. So any time that God was going to speak, he spoke through a mediator. And any time the people were going to speak to God, they spoke through a high priest. Okay? So that's the separation that we had. And then Jesus enters the scene. And what happens is we no longer have a flawed mediator and a flawed high priest who are speaking for us or speaking for God. All of a sudden, we have God in the flesh on earth who was both God and both man. And so he lives a sinless life, and he dies on a cross. He allows himself to die on a cross, okay? And he is raised to life three days later. And what happens is he goes, he ascends into heaven, and he stands at the Father, and he says, hey, Father, I'm both God and both man, so I can be this person. You don't need a mediator. You don't need a high priest because you've got me. And so when the Father, if we choose, when the Father looks at us, he looks through the lens of his perfect son, Jesus, And when we worship God, we worship up, and we see who God is through Jesus. That's why when we want to know God, we look at the life of Jesus. When God wants to look at us, he looks at the circumstances, the opinions, the actions, and the worth of his son. That's what it looks like. So that means that when we say, you're fearfully and wonderfully made, it's not just a a little bumper sticker. No, we're fearfully and wonderfully made because he is marvelous and he created marvelous works and he is fearfully and wonderfully made. And when God looks at his fearfully and wonderfully made son, if we choose to accept him, God sees us fearfully and wonderfully made. And all of a sudden, it's not a bumper sticker. So, it comes down to, am I enough? This cup is not enough, and this cup is what defines me a lot. I'm not enough. But, 
I have an option. I can dump the cup because he is enough. And so in order to develop a good self-worth, and I even hate the idea of self-worth because it has nothing to do with ourselves, we have to change the definition and how we formulate it. So self-worth, the new definition is confidence in Jesus' worth, circumstances, and abilities. How we formulate self-worth is through Jesus' worth, his opinions, his circumstances, and abilities. That's where our self-worth comes from. So, we have a choice. We have this, if we choose. But we can leave our water jar. We can stop trying. It's not about what you do or the circumstances that you are in. Because you can't say enough Hail Marys, you can't date enough guys, you can't lose enough weight, you can't gain enough weight, you can't do anything right in order to satisfy your thirst. It doesn't come from here. It comes through the perfect opinions, circumstances, actions of Jesus Christ. So we have a choice, though, okay? Because God loves us too much to make us robots, He's not a dictator. He's not going to say, well, you're going to do this. He gives you a choice. So, you can choose this cup, and you can continue to drink out of this, or you can accept the living water that will make you never thirst again. And here's the difference, is that condemnation is going to lead you further and further away. It's going to bring you back into the cycle of performance. Conviction, Christ's conviction It's specific. It's usually pretty gentle. It says, hey, you know that thing that you've been keeping from me? I see it, and I love you, and if you'll give it to me, and trust me, I'll make it better. It's pretty specific. It's hopeful. It gives you hope for what's to come, and it breaks the cycle and leads you to Jesus as opposed to performance. So here's what we're going to do. You have an option in this. You can choose this cup, or you can choose the life-giving blood and bread of Jesus Christ. So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, Taylor's going to come and um, play a song over you guys. We're going to pray just individually for a little bit. And you have the option um, to build self-worth. And the first one is leave your cup. So you can leave the lies. All right? You can replace them what he has to offer. His life, his death, and resurrection, the high priest and mediation. And so we're going to pray. And if you are ready to give up what's in the cup, I invite you to come over here, take it, and put it in the water, and watch it disappear. And throw your cup on the ground. Um, and then, if you so choose to do this, we have communion on the table. And communion is simply a representation of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so it's a celebration for us who choose to be viewed through that lens. So if you want to take communion, just pray and thank Jesus for being your high priest and mediator, for his opinions, his abilities, his circumstances taking over. And take the bread and take the cup.